Welcome to the Old Chick Snow Shit Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. Today, we are jumping into some juicy topics with Melanie Klein, who is a professor of sociology and women's studies, an influencer in the areas of body confidence, authentic empowerment, and visibility. Ooh, I love this. (laughs) She is a coach, uh, a speaker, and a writer who has a new book out called Embodied Resilience Through Yoga. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I was really looking forward to this conversation. I have been so looking forward to this conversation too. And where I wanted to dig in with you today is around societal conditioning and how it impacts body confidence and overall confidence, um, specifically in midlife. This is a time where we are all facing great change, both inside of us, but as well as our faces and bodies. And in a society where women's value has become associated with how she looks, uh, what she does in service of other people and her ability to reproduce, you know, when you start losing pieces of that, like redefining your value in the world can feel sometimes like a bit of a struggle. So wanted to have that conversation with you. And um, yeah, I'm so excited to dig in. So in the work that you do around empowerment, like what, how do you define empowerment, first of all? You know, I've defined it in different ways, you know, depending on the interview, the day, the place in my life. But generally, empowerment has really, to me, been even more of a feeling, a way of being more than a way of being able to describe something, if that makes sense. I'm really into the embodiment of things and getting people to move out of the intellectualization of something and the feeling of something. Mm. So in that spirit, I'll say that it's the feeling of just being fully integrated into my wholeness, owning my wholeness, being unapologetic about my wholeness. And when I say my wholeness, I mean every facet of who I am, every part of my being, every part of my body, all the people I've been and all the people that I am now, and really just having complete ownership around it, which doesn't mean that, you know, I will neglect to acknowledge that there are, you know, parts to to work on or parts that need to grow, but just like not apologizing or shrinking and feeling very much in the world, completely Mm. grounded and compelled to take action, right? Empowerment is about being present, taking action, moving, being, having things in the world that oftentimes, especially as women, we're told we shouldn't have, we should apologize for, is not considered appropriately feminine, and I'm doing air quotes here, and kind of shirking off all of those narratives that we've taken on, the things that have really shaped our concept of self, and claiming ownership to our own selves very authentically. Wow. I, I know that was a big one. <laughs> a lot of stuff. I was just going to say, I could go like 16 different ways with, uh, with that yeah. explanation. But what just two things really stuck out for me in what you just said. And the first one was around embodying all of the people we have been and all of the people we are becoming. Because one of the things that I discuss most often is around menopause being a transition period. Like, so menopause tends to be this thing that we all dread. It's like, you know, the dreaded M word. We don't talk about it a lot. It's like a best kept secret. And 
you know, women tend to turn on themselves during this time. Like your body's changing, you know, inside, outside, you're having hot flashes, insomnia, you know, like even anxiety and depression. And our first thought is to turn on ourselves and to, you know, try and beat ourselves into submission, exercise more, diet more, you know, like all of those kinds of things. And when I talk about it, I talk about it as simply being just like puberty was a transition from one part of our life to another. This is the transition from, you know, who we were to who we are becoming. And there's so much power in that if we just like shift the perspective on it a little bit. Well, first of all, I love, you said it so beautifully. So I, I love the way that you share that. And I also really appreciate that you use the word, you know, it, it's we're transitioning to another phase because as you were talking and I, I was sort of, you know, collecting my own thoughts about what we just talked about in terms of empowerment, that study that you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, I was thinking that, you know, women turn on themselves at pretty much every transition in life mm. is what I was already thinking before you even talked about that transition. We've you know, we may get to a place where we find how we can sort of fit like a cog in the wheel of the larger patriarchal culture where we can be acceptable enough, we can be good enough, and we can kind of make that work. And then it starts to shift and we're kind of like, oh my gosh, we need to find our bearings again. How do we fit back into this larger sort of cultural atmosphere as opposed to when I talk about empowerment, you know, really defining it on our own terms. So I think that there is definitely a lot of shame associated with going through menopause. There is a lot of fear that women have, but I don't think it's necessarily the only time or even that magnified. I think sometimes we forget how terrifying these, you know, puberty was or other places. I think just in general, you know, women are taught to not trust their bodies, to be ashamed yeah. of their bodies and specifically everything related to, you know, our reproductivity. Once we start, you know, our menstrual period, if we start our menstrual period, you know, not every woman, obviously, Obviously, right. we'll have one, but there's so much shame associated with that. I remember teaching uh, in my intro women's studies class many, many years ago and talking about the shame that I felt when I started my menstrual period and the fact that I actually hid it from my mother for about a year. Oh, wow. I didn't even tell her, which the details are kind of gruesome around there, but like, you know, really kept it quiet. And then eventually, like my mom even asked me, Hey, did you, did you start your cycle? And I was like, no. And then my mind was like, oh, why did I say that? I could be asking her for like oh, wow. yeah. supplies. And she's like, okay, well, I found, you know, this in the trash can. Are you sure you didn't? So I'm like, nope. And again, I was like, why am I not telling her? And then eventually she just started putting pads underneath the, uh, <laughs> the bathroom sink for me. But I never had a conversation with her about it. I did not entertain that conversation. I was deeply ashamed. There was so much around it. And when I was sharing this in my class, one of my students said, oh, you know, when I started my cycle, all the women in my family gathered together and we opened up a bottles of wine that my grandmother bought on the day that I was born preparing for this day. And it was a celebration. And, you know, when I presented it to my students at the time, what would it be like if we had learned early on that every phase of our, you know, life's journey oh, was a celebration Yes. Right? What is if we uh, had been taught that all of these things are a natural part of, you know, growing from one phase to the other and really marking those milestones and having these rituals around it? How would we feel differently about it now? And I think it's the same, you know, if we think mm -hmm. about the aging process is like, you know, one hand, we're terrified of what's happening to our bodies as we go through puberty. Do we have breasts? Do we not have breasts? Are they big enough? Are they too small? Did I get my cycle first? Am I the last person? Does anybody know? You know, 
do I, am I malodorous? Am I wrong? I mean, there's so much around that. Right. And then, I mean, talk about for those women who may choose to have children, what happens around pregnancy and the shaming that happens around you, not only, you know, pregnant bodies, postnatal bodies, and all the things that we don't talk about that happens to women after they've given birth. I wish somebody would have told me because I was shocked. Okay. I was not prepared. (laughs) And then the same thing is when we move into the cycle of where that's no longer a possibility. I mean, as I was even preparing for our interview today, I was thinking to myself, I was like, okay, so, you know, Jennifer and I, we, you and I connected months ago and had our first conversation and decided to do this interview. And, you know, and I knew it was coming for a long time. And then the last few days I was like, I'm going to be on a podcast called old chicks, no shit. And I I sat there. I was like, how interesting, like, what does it feel to be on a podcast with that name? And what is it bringing up in me knowing that I, I'm supposed to be on that podcast because I fit that category that, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 40s now. And it brought me to the memory of when I first was a professor. I was 31 at the time. And around the time I hit 35 thinking, am I going to be relevant to my students once I hit 40? Will I still command the room the same way? And so it just brought up all of my own things, like how much have I resolved? How much is still there? How much have I worked through and how much is still continuing to come through my system because I'm continuing to see images in the culture and narratives in the culture that not only make a woman's body wrong and women's reproduction dirty and messy and something to be ashamed of, but the aging process wrong. And so I know that there's a lot here, but all of that to say, it's like, it's an ongoing process to begin to dismantle these cultural narratives because they really come back down to power, right? Women's bodies. I mean, this is really going in deep. If we think about, you know, the old Testament and the new Testament, how it's just been embedded into, you know, religious ideology and whether or not we are of those religious persuasions, those religious ideologies have not only formed our specific subcultures, they have informed the larger culture. And this idea that, you know, we need to control women's bodies, that we need to have ownership over women's bodies. Women shouldn't have choice and their sexuality is dangerous, that their bodies are dangerous. There's still so much of that in there. I mean, we don't even have medical, there are some medical tests and the way that women are dealt with in the medical industry in which they are oftentimes getting misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because we still use, you know, the the cisgender heteronormative male body as the standard of comparison. So it's just, there's so much that, you know, we're looking kind of at this specificity around, you know, women as they age and going into menopause, but it's just part of a much larger fabric that literally goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. For sure. One of the stories I hear most often, and and this is my experience as well, too, is, you know, like, so first of all, we don't talk about menopause. We don't just like, you know, just like you were saying your, your experience of puberty. We don't talk about menopause. We don't know what to expect. For me, menopause was like getting a two by four to the face. Like I had every symptom in the book. And when I went to my doctor, she's like, oh, it's just this. Oh, you know, you're getting older. Like I wasn't taken seriously. And I hear this conversation over and over and over again, where even doctors will be like, well, oh, you're too young. But meanwhile, you know, the research says you could start menopause as early as your late thirties. Like you can first start having symptoms, but that so many women are not taken seriously that their concerns about what they're experiencing in terms of the changing in their bodies are just kind of, you know, explained away, as opposed to even looking at the fact that this is a condition or a condition, I even hate to call it a condition, but there is a natural transition in life. Yeah. There's an experience though, that's being had, that's not being taken seriously. 
And so it, again, it's no wonder we turn back on ourselves because it's like the, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I manage this? Everybody else in the world seems to be able to deal with this thing. And here, meanwhile, I'm not sleeping. I think I'm losing my mind. I'm you know, snapping people's heads off. I want to cry the other half of the time, <laughs> right? And feeling like you're going crazy. Like you start turning on yourself that way when it can be so easily explained and managed and given your power back. Like it's, disempo- it's a disempowering feeling, right? To have these things and then not be taken seriously. It's like gaslighting in a way. <laughs> It is. It's, it's, you know, not being taken seriously. It's being overlooked. It's being minimized. It's, and it's also being isolated. It's being hidden. You know, as you were sharing that, I was thinking about, you know, one of the most powerful moments in my life that I've written about quite extensively is when I met my first mentor, when I went to junior college and being in the room and starting to have things in my life explained from the perspective of the larger culture, understanding the systems and structures in place. And that I, I was one of a larger statistic. I, you know, that my seemingly individual experiences were actually normative, but I didn't know because I didn't have access to that information and things like this weren't talked about. It's very much what second wave feminists call the personal is political. Essentially what started to happen is the personal for me began to be political. And as a result, I felt very empowered because all of the individual and personal guilt, blame, and shame that I carried began to dissolve when I understood, oh, wait, I am not the only one having this experience. I am not an isolated case. And actually, this phenomenon, not just for me, but for other girls and women, is very standard in this culture. And that was empowering and liberating to not feel so alone and going, gosh, what are all of the other things that I've experienced with my body, with my psyche, with my identity that I kept so close, you know, like I held the card so closely because I felt if I revealed my hand, it would somehow project my not enoughness. It would project my insecurities, it would project my faults, my, you know, all, all of the bad parts of me to others. And uh, I didn't want them to know. I wanted to keep it a secret. And I realized, oh, it's actually not about me. This is something much larger. And so it's the same thing here, you know, that we aren't really be- being given that information. We're not having candid and honest conversations. Same as after I, you know, gave birth to my son, there was a little bit of resentment, not at specific women, but the culture at large that had silenced us and having really compassionate and honest conversations with one another in solidarity and support to prepare us and support us, you know, on these various journeys. Like I was just completely blindsided through the process of giving birth and afterwards and the, you know, months that followed. And it, I mean, I was <laughs> in low grade depression. So many things were trauma that were happening. And I just felt like, oh gosh, how could we alleviate these burdens and this, these pain points for girls and women? If we not only banded together in solidarity as communities, intergenerational communities, right. But also as a culture that we just made this a part of the natural conversation. I'm happy to see that there are more women. Obviously, you know, we see older models now. We see, you know, more actresses over a certain age, but they're still not normative. It's still not the actual representation of our numbers in the culture. And there's still a certain pressure. There's like there's a certain sanitized version of aging that we see in oh. those cultural narratives. And, you know, I would love to see more fully dimensional female characters over the age of 40, you know, of different sizes and of different races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses so that we can just have 
you know, more accurate role models and we can have more accurate and fully dimensional storylines and narratives so that we don't feel so blindsided every time we go into a new transition and we don't go back into the shame spiral. Well, I mean, that is so true. I mean, I read somewhere that we're, we are bombarded with something like 30,000 images a day of what a woman is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Right. And then put layer on top of that, the fact that first of all, the only time you ever see women who are over the age of 40 in mainstream advertising and media, it's about bladder leakage protection. Um, <laughs> it's a diaper commercial. That I right. see all the time. Supplements, you know, uh, or retirement ads, you know, like waiting for sitting around waiting for the grandkids to visit. And I'm like, okay, right. all of those are necessary things and like very useful to people, but it tells a fraction of the story of what women over 40 are about. And I'm like, where are all these kick-ass women doing like amazing things in the world? Like where are those represented? Which is one of the reasons why I started yeah. this podcast and why I started building this platform is because we need more of that representation. Like we need to see these things. And when I was, you know, suffering burnout and everything else, and I, you know, basically couldn't get out of bed my whole life, I had to reinvent at the age of 50. I was like, there has to be, like, where's the inspiration? I need to see somebody else do this yeah. so I can figure out how to navigate my way forward. Yeah, that's why, you know, a lot of my work has been around representation. Representation matters. And I've done a lot of media literacy work because like we are inundated, like you said, with all of these images every day. There was a 2015 statistic that said that a person in 2015 took in more media imagery. And when I say media, I mean, it's from all the devices, all right. the various mediums that we interact with. We're taking in more imagery in one year than a person in the 1950s took in during a lifetime. Wow. Right? In the scope of human history, we this is unprecedented and unparalleled, right? And so for me, naturally, as you know, one of the inroads of my empowerment work starting over 20 years ago was around body image, body acceptance, and really coming to peace with oneself because for many women, especially young women, that becomes one of the biggest obstacles and challenges to their sense of worth and value and you know, really a sense of being able to accomplish in the world because they're so hung up on how they don't match the standard beauty paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was one of my inroads going like this, we're spending more time as Naomi Wolf talked about in the 90s on the beauty myth and using what we look like as a currency and not developing other skills, talents, and abilities because we're told that they're not important. Amen. Right? And so then we're constantly comparing ourselves to this completely unrealistic, you know, image that we're being, you know, bombarded with in the media. And then I also began to, you know, sort of segue into, and let's also take a look at, right, the fact that no matter what we do, we're inevitably going to age, right? How does that fit into the narrative? And, and what does that mean for us? It's just, there's so many pieces are around this and girls and women have been taught that no matter how accomplished we are, no matter how intelligent we are, no matter if we're a mother or if we're pregnant at this point, we have to be hot. We have to be attractive. I mean, before uh, Stifler's mom in American Pie was around, there was no concept of the MILF. The word MILF came from that film. And I was like, oh, what now we even when we're moms, we have to be, oh, come on. And then 
as we move through about 2005 to 2010, there was even an emphasis on what we should look like during pregnancy and how quickly like there were, that's when we started having the narrative of the, the you know, we bound all the celebrities who bounced back from their pregnancy and got their, their pre-pregnancy bodies back. It's just, it's, it's, it's daunting. And as a result, you know, I remember as my mother was uh, starting menopause and aging because she had me when she was about 20 something. And so I remember I was about 18 when she turned 40. I remember her moving into her forties and she was, you know, she would go to the gym and she would work out regularly. She had a, like a group training class. And I remember she came home one day and she's like, wow, she's like, Michael. And that was her trainer said to me in front of everybody else. Oh, Barbara, it's really time that you cut your hair. You look like a witch because she had long gray hair at this point. Like she kept it long. Right. So it was kind of like gray and blonde or whatever. And she said, so gosh, on one hand, I'm dealing with this, like, okay. So now if I maintain these sort of symbols of youth, I'm put into this certain category. And she goes, and yet at the same time, she's, I also notice I'm becoming invisible. And she said, and there is a part of me that also enjoys becoming invisible. So I remember it was a double-edged sword for her. And as when I became pregnant, and then once I started pushing a stroller around, I noticed something similar, like, oh, wow, I'm kind of not seen. When I'm pushing a stroller, I'm not seen. And on one hand, it also created some frustration and resentment. And then at the same time, there was relief because there is such an emphasis on what we look like. And sometimes we can feel violated just walking down the street, right? And so it just becomes this really important work to talk about our body image, our relationship with our body, to deconstruct the beauty norm and point out the ageism, the sexism, the heteronormative, you know, narrative that goes with it, the racism, the, you know, sizeism. It's because it is a component of our own empowerment. And if this was about boys and men, not that there aren't standards for them, they have increased since about 1997, but a man can age, a man can have wrinkles, a man can gain weight, a man can, you know, be all of these things. And it doesn't seem to detract. I mean, look at our political party. It doesn't detract from his power, from his sense of authority, right? But for us, it's like that becomes the diminishing factor. We even see it with, you know, the the sexism and double standards with Hillary Clinton, the focus on her body, her scrunchies, her suits. And I remember telling my students, this was in 2008 when she was running against Obama, like that woman doesn't have a choice but to wear anything else. If she didn't wear the power suit, that would be scrutinized. She's kind of put on a uniform to deflect as much as possible. And what kind of energy and time does that drain from her to even have to consider that? Or the racism and sexism that Michelle Obama dealt with when they were talking about her arms being too muscular when she came into office. (laughs) No, it's, it's relentless. It's really relentless. So all of that to say representation is so incredibly important because it is so vital that at every step of the way, we have a diverse range of role models, a diverse range of narratives of voices. So that we don't have to be 20, 30, 40, or 50, you know, deconstructing this and reconstructing a narrative that supports us. We should be having these conversations and this diversity from the time that children are young, because not only does it make a difference for girls and women, but it makes such a difference for boys and men in terms of how they learn to relate to girls and women at different stages of their life, the level of respect, right? Because when we have equity, when we actually see people as human, we also don't commit acts of violence. And if we think about the rampant sort of global epidemic of violence against women in all of its forms, I guarantee you, if we actually begin to have 
right, role models and representation of women's accomplishments aside from, you know, what size jeans they're wearing. If we take a look at and listen to women's voices aside from how they are placating and playing to the larger patriarchal culture, we can actually see them as fully dimensional humans worthy of respect, right, and equity on their own accord. And I feel like it's in all of our interest to, to be having these conversations about aging and beyond. For sure. And that's one of the things I talk about most is, you know, the phase of life that we're stepping into um, menopause is really we are becoming the leaders, the teachers, the guiders, the way showers. And so when we step into our power at this time of like, when we claim our power back from everything, you know, that has been like working against us for so long or that we've bought into for so long, when we use this time now to claim our power back and step into whatever it is, a new career, a new life, a reinvention, whatever that looks like, we're actually changing the paradigm for all of those women who are coming behind us, our daughters and our granddaughters. And like, you know, the other thing I I often talk about too, is like for this generation of women now in their fifties, we are very different than women in the past generation of their fifties, right? Like in terms of, you know, we're the first generation to have like held down, you know, full-time, like major careers, like, you know, career ambitions and have kids and do all of that. And, you know, I mean, women have always worked like, but this is a different paradigm, right? Well, I think there's an ethos now, if I compare it to maybe not so much my mother, because my mother is 70. And I think things started to change a bit with her generation as she moved through the countercultural movements. But definitely for my grandmother, who was born in 1926 and was a young woman, you know, during World War II, there was almost a sense that your life ended at a certain age, right? And that even your children and grandchildren uh, kind of believed that you only had a life from the time that they were born, right? And they forgot that you were a person beforehand and you're a person afterwards. And that's, yeah, that is definitely shifting. What I will say, I can't not address this is so much as this this is related to what happened to women during the burning times. Mm, Yes. Right. If we think think about pre-patriarchal cultures, if we think about, you know, the sort of all of those pagan cultures, goddess worshiping cultures, you know, pre-scientific communities even, and the essence of the divine feminine, not as a person, not as a being, but as a symbol, as an energy, and the power that was there in terms of creation, life force energy, all of that, that really began to be, you know, massively challenged and tackled during the burning times, which you know, was not only happening, obviously, in Salem, Massachusetts, but all over Europe with the Spanish Inquisition, where women who were healers, women who were midwives and doulas, herbalists, women who were over 40, which was uncommon at the time. Like if you reach 40, you know, you reach old age. And even then, as a woman, you became suspect. And that was the whole classification of, you know, calling them witches and, you know, burning them at the stake or, you know, putting them in the ducking stool. There was so much fear during those dark ages and during the burning times about women and their sexuality and their bodies and their power and their age. And so all of the women who were counselors, who were sages, who had past those reproductive years and where they were really freed up and they weren't nursing and they weren't child rearing and they weren't, you know, taking care of husbands in the same way, but they were really freed up to come into their fullness, which goes back to my definition of empowerment earlier, right? They were able to do that. They were very, very much feared at that time. So they're still, it's amazing to me. I've done a lot of work and research around the burning times. You know, I have a lot of great sources for anyone who wants to contact me around that. It still plays such a role 
role and how we look at women over a certain age, how we evaluate them, how we feel about them, the names we call them from hags to my mother being called a witch by her trainer in jest, the even the power over paradigm that, that we have in patriarchy, that power is something that is hierarchical. It's about dominance where if we look at these, you know, pre-patriarchal goddess, you know, worshiping cultures, power was a benevolent force for all. It was something that was the power within. It was about manifestation. It was about taking your will and seeing it realized. If we look at so many indigenous culture, it was about the hoop, it's about the circle, it's about connection, it's about partnership. It's not about domination. And as we see those cultures, those patriarchal cultures rise, the notion of, well, power is evil, power is bad, and power is only something that men should have. And if women have them in some form, and if women congregate together, because women were not even allowed to get together in small groups. Right, right right? That there's so much of that that still plays a huge part in our culture. There's still so much of that underlying fear that comes through, which is why, especially as women age, where they really truly are freed and liberated from so many of the constraints that younger women have, it's no surprise that they are, they become invisible. We want to kind of sweep them under the rug. That's when you have women like Kamala Harris, that's like, Hey, I'm speaking and can really own that shit hardcore, right? So I just, I, I would be really remiss not to mention yeah, no, other, yeah, socio-historical connections. Yeah, that's, that's actually incredible when you think, you know, the things that we are facing, you know, every day have been bred in our society for like generations and generations. And then we turn on ourselves when we get to that place. Like we're literally blaming ourselves for, you know, generations of societal conditioning. Well, and a certain way or, you know. Oh, 100%. And I love, you know, you use the word conditioning. As a sociologist, I use the word socialization, right? Right. Socialization is the process by which we essentially learn the cultural norms and values of the time and place in which we're born or grow up. And we really incorporate it into our self-concept. And that's what people forget. So when we start to tease these things apart and we see the socio-historical origins of this, what's really powerful and was one of the most empowering things for me, as I shared a little bit earlier, or beginning to take away the individual shame, guilt, and blame was going, oh, okay, all of these things that I took for granted, all of these things that I thought were normal, all of these things that I thought were inherently a part of who I am or part of my process aren't. They're not at all. In fact, all of them are social constructs. They are symbols and meanings that have been created by humans. They're symbols and meanings that have been created by humans in a particular culture that reflect the systems of a power and oppression that exist and that have been really, right, formed into every part of my experience from what my parents say and think to what is on the television, to what I'm discussing with my peers, to what we're hearing, quote, experts and leaders talking about and, you know, laws that are being made. All of this is reflecting these norms and values that we as a society have created. And I'm taking it in drip by drip drip by drip, right? Both overtly and covertly until it just becomes embedded into who I am and the lens through which I view and experience the world. And once I got that, I was like, okay, the powerful part about it is we can have conversations like this. We can have role models like you, Jennifer, role models like Kamala, role models like fill in the blank who are subverting those paradigms, allowing us to, whether they say it or not, to begin to understand oh, there are different ways of being. There are different ways Mm. of experiencing life. There are different ways to relate to this. And as a result, 
we can recreate, rethink, and reimagine how we do things, how we communicate, how we raise our children, how we role model, how we represent. And that's what's so exciting to me always is that none of this is inherent. None of it is normal. It's normative, but it's not normal. Not normal. I literally have goosebumps all over my body from just... <laughs> <laughs> because I, that just speaks to me on so many levels. Can you talk about, so shifting societal conditioning or socialization, like shifting the narrative. As you were talking, I was thinking about commu- how important community will be is well, yeah. in, in terms of shifting that narrative, right? Like where we band together as, you know, the badass, powerful midlife women that we are and the bigger that community co- becomes, the more powerful it is in terms of shifting that conditioning or that socialization. Like, do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's really important that we begin to, first of all, strengthen our bonds and community and our sense of solidarity with other women in across the full range of human diversity, not just women who look like us or sound like us or live in our neighborhood, right? And intergenerationally, I think it's important. Some of the uh, most powerful influences I've had have been women, you know, decades older than me, from both of my grandmothers to my first mentor who herself, she's now 90. I was my early 20s, she was 60s at the time, um, to in a lot of my feminist spirituality communities, my elders and those communities, and really, you know, understanding the, oh my gosh, the value of their wisdom and experience and mining that for everything that I could. And then me transmitting it to the women younger than me that came to me and really making sure that there was this beautiful you know, and consistent flow of wisdom and experience that was going both ways, giving and receiving in this direction and in the other direction and starting to build a sense of solidarity, not just friendship is obviously beautiful, but beginning to come together with real sacred intention, not just for shopping or for lunching, which is fun or watching romantic comedies, which yes, I love, but really about, hey, let's let's strengthen these structures. Let's really create this beautiful, powerful constellation among us so that none of us feel isolated, like what we said at the beginning of this conversation, or feel, you know, hidden or unseen, and that we can begin to have relationships that are much more than simply spending time together, but it's about creating something together. It's about, you know, really imagining something together. And in that process, we also begin to remove and unlearn and write a new script for the other narrative that we're given as girls and women, which is to view other girls and women as suspect with cynicism, with disdain oftentimes. I mean, men and boys do not have the word frenemy in their vocabulary, right? Volumes right there. (laughs) Right. We rip each other apart oftentimes, or, you know, we are resentful and jealous. And it's like, let's really begin to heal, you know, these relationships we have amongst each other and between each other, you know, like I said, intergenerationally and within our generation. So we can have really deep compassion, right? We can really see one another, right? In our fullness and our vulnerability, and in that way, empower one another as well. It is absolutely vital that we don't do it alone. So important. So important. I mean, that, I mean, you articulated that so beautifully, but that has been the motivation behind, you know, creating this old chicks community, you know, my Facebook group and stuff like that is like, let's come together and support each other. Because when we empower one of us, we empower all of us, like the work that I do to feel empowered, the work that you do to empower yourself, like it literally lifts us all. 
all together, right? And we can't do it alone. Absolutely. And in that, I think it's also important that in this coming together and in this unification and in in these building bridges, it's also important that we, at the same time that we see the commonalities that we also really treasure and honor and don't dismiss the differences between each other, because that's, you know, unfortunately what we, what we've seen is that, you know, whether it's, you know, heterosexual women or white women dismissing the experiences of women who are of color or who are part of the LGBT community or so on and so forth, that let's really hold the fullness, the richness of our diversity and the points of connection to build a truly, truly inclusive, equitable, and strong bond, right, as women and not pretend that we're all the same and go to the kumbaya moment. We can have that, but let, right. let's, let's, let's make sure we're staying really real and being very, very responsible about the entire process. Amen. That's yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> listen, uh, Melanie for president. <laughs> oh, you were so sweet. I'm going to say Jennifer, Jennifer for president. <laughs> no, I'm like, no, you need to be in the White House. <laughs> so just as a, you know, a, a parting thought around, you know, us stepping into our own empowerment, claiming back our power at this time of life, like any final thoughts or anything that, you know, you wanted to cover that we didn't cover? Yeah. I mean, God, I could talk to you all afternoon. Like, Oh no, same here. And you know, in in our pre-call, we're like, well, we may have to have a part two. We may have to have a part two is what I'm saying. But I think in parting, what really comes to me, and I'm just going to take a moment to pause and close my eyes as I say this is I really encourage women to, to understand that they are so much more powerful and capable than they have given themselves credit for, or they are far more capable and powerful than they have owned up until this point. And with that, not to fear their own power, not to get caught up in those patriarchal traps that power is bad. Power is not quote, feminine power is not for women, that power is something evil. There are a lot of, you know, really uncomfortable things I think women have in relationship to the concept of power and to not fear that power, but to truly understand what a benevolent, nourishing, right, uh, gift it is not only for themselves, but for everyone they come into contact with. And like you said, when we really own it, when we come into it fully, we really do elevate not only the entire vibration of our community, but we then represent, we role model all of the different possibilities. And each of us in our own unique way can step into the actions, right? That we are then able to take when we embrace and we do not fear our power. And that is, I mean, that it creates a sea change. It is just, yeah, it just wow. totally turns me on. <laughs> Again, I have goosebumps and tears. Okay. Like that is, that is so amazing because it like, when you put it in that context, like I take that and I think it is my duty. Like it is my responsibility to really step into and claim my power. Yes. And, and, and with that, I always say that some of the things that I've done in my life, I felt compelled, like it was beyond me. So that's very similar. Like I want you know, women of every age and every persuasion, every background to really get to the place where they are compelled into the right action for them because we are, we benefit 
you know, I benefit when individuals really claim their full gifts, their areas of mastery and allow it to be seen, allow it to be witnessed, allow it to come into form. It's just, it's truly magnificent. And especially I think, you know, we're obviously this podcast, we're recording it on November 5th, two days after the election as votes are still being counted. And for a lot of people, it's created a lot of agitation and trauma, which I absolutely understand. And yet I think this conversation really just speaks to the fact that at any moment, in any circumstance, we really, when we can reach in to ourselves deeply and access those PowerPoints, we can shift anything. We can recreate what currently exists and create a world and an experience and a sense of community that truly is nourishing and equitable for all people. And that's what I really hope to see. And that's what has inspired my work, both personally and professionally for the last 20 plus years. Wow. Well, I mean, I know we just scratched the surface of the amazing work that you do. There was a whole angle I was going to talk about body acceptance. We touched on it, but that could be like part two. (laughs) But for anybody who wants to dig more into Melanie's work, where can they, into your work, where can they find you? So I I like to, you know, spend a lot of my time on Instagram. So people can go to Instagram and my handle is Mel Mel Klein. That's K-L-E-I-N, Mel Mel Klein on Instagram. And on Instagram, in my bio, there is a link to any upcoming events that I have to my personal website, which happens to be Melanie C. Klein. So M-E-L-A-N-I-E-C-K-L-E-I-N.com. But you can also just access that from my link tree in the bio on Instagram. So um, those are the best ways to find me. And I welcome any and all communication. Perfect. That's amazing. We'll make sure that we put all of that in the show notes so um, people can find you. This has been a fascinating conversation, like, like the history and how ingrained, you know, this is in our society, like how, you know, women being disempowered has been, like I said, centuries of this, and we are still living out like generational karma, you know, throughout all of that, but we can change it. Just like you said, we have the power to change it. And that's absolutely hundred percent. So good. Thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. Please go check out Melanie's work. Um, It's absolutely fascinating. And um, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in. 